0: Go ahead, Chase.
1: Okay. Hey, Tom. Um, So now that I'm having to ask the question, now I'm realizing how hard it is to ask. Um, I'm having trouble uh, being more aware when I go to certain realities. So I'll I'll go into something and – and sometimes I can play catch-up. I I catch up to my awareness in it, but sometimes I don't quite. And my question is I I wonder if sometimes we're allowed to be more aware in, in these certain realities or sometimes we're disallowed. To be unaware in certain realities, sometimes I feel like I wake up and I feel like I've learned something, but I can't quite know what that is. Like some process was happening underneath. And when I came to, I was like, I have little bits of images that, that come back to me, but I'm like, I don't really know. I get a feeling of what it was, but I can't quite. Remember
2: it? I don't know. Okay, there's a couple of things perhaps going on there, uh, Chase. One is the generally when we travel around, the system gives us just the amount of resolution that we need to do what it is we need to do. Right. Uh, We don't get, you know, we don't often get uh, super resolution just for the fun of it. We get to see. Uh, you know, often we'll look at something or some object or some being and we'll focus in on that and everything else kind of drops out. You know, we only get the the information that's pertinent to us. You don't get a lot of non-pertinent, uh, uh, you know, backgrounds and, and uh, you know, um, landscapes and that sort of thing. So sometimes things can be very fuzzy, but you don't need clarity, say a vision. That's not the point. You know, this is all done in feeling space, so vision isn't, isn't important in it, and you don't need to have clarity of vision. Sometimes clarity of vision may be very important, and you have it that's even clearer than it is here in this reality. It's spectacularly yeah. clear, oh, and, man, you can yeah. zoom, and you can zoom in. You know, you can get right down to the cellular level and details and zoom out, and you have this tremendous vision. So whatever you need generally is what you get. So that's one thing. So some of these things maybe you don't need any more than what you're getting. The second thing is that often we don't remember things that we don't want to deal with, Mm -hmm. things that we are, uh, you know, challenges that we have, and we don't really want to have to deal with that, so we come back empty-handed. We don't come back with anything. So that can happen as well. Mm -hmm. The third thing is that if you want to remember more, have the intent. Start out before you go with the intent. I need to remember just yeah. what happened and why it happened and the conditions that it happened so that I can learn more. And keep that intent strong in your mind. And then when you're out there and you're doing something, say oh, I want to bring it I want to make sure I bring this back. Okay, I got it now and clear, but when I wake up I know it's going to be foggy, so go over it in your mind. Think about it. You know, repeat it. 10 times in your mind so that you're you're clear, focus on it. And then when you come back, you'll remember it. So some of it you can just program, you can work on by having an intention to remember it and then um, making uh, an extra effort while you're there to fix it in your memory so that you won't let it go easily. So I'd say just work with that and don't be frustrated with it. Sometimes, like I say, you just get what you need. And you really didn't need any more than that. You know that was uh, that was good enough. You don't always have to take your intellect along. Sometimes your intellect uh, isn't engaged. You're dealing with something on a on a uh, an emotional level, and the intellect's kind of turned off. And you come back with a feeling. You don't come back with a knowledge, and that's okay too. Just let that you know let that process in its own space. So don't let it frustrate you. But you can work with it with an intent to improve your recall.
1: I appreciate that, Tom. That, was, that really answered my question. <laughs> Good.
3: There's a question here from Mookie on child uh, nightmares. <clears throat> As a young person, I had terrible nightmares over a long period, maybe for two years waking up my family, every, screaming every night. Um, I remember I sometimes woke up in an OBE state, that's out of body, where I saw a very scary monster right in front of my face, maybe two centimeters from my own. They do like their close-ups, don't they? For some reason, I solved my fears, and since they stopped coming, I haven't explored them since. Um, how do I work on this? I, I have fears of them, of, of the visuals of, of them coming back.
2: How do I work on this fear? Well, you have to work on that fear like you work on any fear. It's the fear that's creating the dream. It's your fearful reaction to the dream that creates your next, you know, your next fearful dream. A um, couple of ways you can you can uh, work on it. One, you can try to just have the courage to not be frightened the next time something scary happens in this some alternate reality or in a dream. You can just have, you know, and you, again, you program your mind for this. You say, next time I get into a a scary situation, here's what I'm going to do. You know, I'm not going to run. I'm not going to feel helpless. I'm just going to stand up to it and let whatever happen happens. If I get eaten, okay, I'll be eaten. I guess I'll have the experience of being swallowed, and that will be interesting. You know, so you have that sort of an attitude toward it. You'll just deal with it. You'll experience it, whatever it is. And uh, you won't run or be frightened of it. So that's one thing you can do. That's probably the most direct and easiest solution, but it's probably the hardest solution. Uh, Difficult to have that much courage in that situation. But if you focus on it and kind of program for it, you can have that reaction. Nothing is going to hurt you in these other realities. It's just that you believe that it's going to hurt you, and that belief is a representation of your fears. So have the courage to just stand up and and deal with it positively, and give it a hug. You know, wish it well, and don't react with fear. One way. Second way is try to find the root of the fear. What? Where is this fear coming from? What it's about? Is it a fear of what death? Is it a fear of? I don't know what it would be if you see monsters. Uh, a fear of uh, outside events overcoming you. It's a fear of being out of control. You know, find out what this fear is and then work on that. And you work on a fear by becoming so aware of it that you really begin to understand how it affects your life, how it affects your choices. Your everyday choices are affected by these fears. And once you understand how your life is being manipulated by your fear, that will give you some incentive to get rid of it. You get rid of it every time you notice it coming up. You just stop it and say, No, I'm not going to have that reaction. The more you do that, the more you pull energy out of it. The less potent it becomes, and eventually it goes poof in a little cloud of smoke and disappears. So you can come overcome it with courage and with a strong intent to not go there. That's how you would overcome your fear. So those are two two ways of approaching it. And once your fears are gone, those those dreams and those those things you're experiencing will be gone as well.
0: All right. Thank you, Tom. Um, who has typed in a question
3: so that we can understand it? Um, from her audio, since her audio isn't working. Um, what she is referring back to is the, what Yogananda talked about on the different levels, that there are less, um, there are some more hellish and some more heavenly levels, and we get reincarnated to them according to our level of consciousness. Uh, is that necessarily true? Uh,
2: no not necessarily true could happen that you decide that another reality frame is more suitable to you and you go there but taken our mission here and that is to grow up you grow up by becoming love you become love by making what's important about others See, it's not about you so it's about others then coming back here to help out to be of service to others is a good thing to do. It's a thing that you would want to do if you're grown up. So when you grow up, when you uh, get rid of your fears, you become love, it's not like you want to say, oh, I'm out of here. You know, this is a tough place full of meanness. You know, I don't want to go back there anymore. That would be a very self-centered attitude. That wouldn't be the attitude of somebody who was grown up. Somebody who was grown up would say, "Well, they need me down there. Now I've learned a lot. I can really be more helpful than I was last time last time i just couldn't be but so helpful cuz my own ego kept getting in the way but i'll do better this time and that's the way you would approach it if you were more grown up so the idea of this is a place that's kind of dense and low on the level of uh, consciousness quality and you stay here until you graduate and then when you graduate you go to some place where everybody's nicer and more cooperative it doesn't really work that way so much the the coarseness and the you know the uh, meanness that we find here is a challenge it's something to overcome it's something that needs to be overcome it's a it's a problem looking for a solution so what better way than to try to be part of the solution so we need as many grown up people we need as many grown ups to come back here into this elementary school as possible to help all the rest of us grow up so in general that's not the case. Once you grow up, you don't want to escape, you want to help. So it's not like that. But I think, you know, when when uh when religions get started, often they're very uh uh very clear, very straightforward and not very complicated. But then as they grow and take on larger and larger and larger numbers, you end up having to have something attractive To get the new people to come in and join you. And I suspect this is one of those things. You know, for in the Christian world, that thing is heaven. You know, you you get to be a good person. You love Jesus. and You you know, and that's a wonderful thing. Otherwise, you go to hell, and that's a terrible thing. Well, you don't have heaven and hells and so on in in the uh, uh, Eastern theologies. But you still have to find that incentive that why would people come and spend their time and their effort Trying to be better people when you know the way to get by is that you gotta push back just as hard as you get pushed. And why should they do that? So I think the answer to that incentive is well, you get to grow out of you get to graduate from this place. You know, if you if you join and and learn and let go of your fear and whatever, you know, you get to leave this tough place and you get to go someplace really, really nice. So my thought is that that's kind of a typical thing in most religions that you need something to bring in the new recruits and um, to make the old recruits see, you know, light at the end of the tunnel because if you tell them, "Oh yeah, when you're done come back and help." You know, if you're at a higher level of evolution, you say, "Yeah, great." But if you're at a lower level level of evolution, you say, "No way." You know, I get out of here, I'm never coming back. So I think that's what that's all about. Now, I don't subscribe to that, and and uh, the larger system is not hierarchical. You don't have a lot of levels, and you don't separate uh, you know, classes and people who are more evolved from people who are less evolved. The more evolved you are, the more interested you are of getting back in the game and being part of the solution. So this idea that all the evolved people go off and, you know, Have tea parties, you know, together for eternity is just not the really doesn't make any sense. It's not the way it works. So no, I don't subscribe to that. But it is uh, in most religions as they grow, we have this thing that you get a reward for giving us your cash and doing what we say. You know, there is a reward. Otherwise, nobody want to join just to grow up and get rid of their fear. You know, why would I want to do that? So that's what I think it is. I hope I haven't upset anybody by saying that, but that's, that is that uh, is my opinion of it.
3: All right. Well, we'll ask the next question, and that is uh, synergy on planet Earth. Um, if I understand Tom correctly, we humans as a species are or hope to achieve a state of collective synergy collaboration in the future. Does this mean it is doable within our lifetime? Would you have an example of a prog- of a progression that could take place in order for that to happen? What would a world based on caring and collaboration look like? Collectively envisioning such a world might assist in the process. And finally, if the SI principle prevents us from collectively bending the spoon in order to us from ourselves? Would it mean that if we grow up enough and achieve a love-based society, we could bend the rules set it will? What humanity and life even look like then?
2: Okay, three questions. The first one, um, um, some, some process that could take place in the near future. Uh, and does it mean that it's doable and within our lifetime? Well, yes, it is doable and likely within our lifetime. Certainly within your lifetime, because you're a, a young person. Um, I would guess that within a decade or two, we're going to see the beginning of it. Now, that doesn't mean we'll see the end of it. The end may take a while, but we're going to see the beginning of it. I believe in a cup in a decade or two, maybe less. Maybe more. It's hard to say about these things. And then it will grind on for a while because there's two basic phases here. One is the, the physicists, though they don't know it, and it's quite unintentional on their part, they're going to start the ball rolling with a greater understanding of virtual reality. So that will get the ball rolling and that's going to happen soon because virtual reality is just getting to be a bigger and bigger deal in physics departments every year because it's better physics it just answers the you know experiments and the old materialist reality cannot answer the experiments so physicists tend to go with what works and virtual reality seems to work well we're just at the initial parts of that but i th- think in a of uh, we will have probably gotten to the point where the physicists will say, yes, it's very likely this is a virtual reality. When we say that, when the scientists, I call the scientists the high priests of Western culture, when the high priests say that, then most people, most thinking people will say, well, if this is a virtual reality, who's the programmer? Where's the computer? Because you see, virtual realities need Programmers and computers, at least that's what everybody thinks. So what that means is that if this is a virtual reality, then that means we are a subset of something larger. We're a subset of something more fundamental. You see? So that, then, is science validating mysticism. Science validating theology. Okay, because there's this something bigger that is our source. That's necessary if this is a virtual reality. It's logical necessary if this is a virtual reality. Well, that will make a big impact on our planet, a very large impact. And people will start uh, wondering, what's that all about? What is this source? Of course, the, the known religions are going to jump in and try to make the point that their god is the better programmer. And that, uh, you know, all the rest of them are not very good programmers at all. And that's going to maybe get religious uh, people fighting with each other again and so on, trying to own this new idea. But hopefully we'll be grown up enough to avoid that. And we will then realize, because it's only logical, that consciousness is the computer. Nothing else fits. That's the only logical solution to the problem. Consciousness is the computer, and once you get that far it's only another logical step that love is the answer so if within a decade or two it becomes the word of science that love is the answer you know that's a pretty strange uh pretty strange connection but if that happens then i would suspect we'll start to see things change a lot cuz people suddenly their focus will be drawn into bigger pictures and bigger things and we will have uh A lot of interest in these subjects and if we're able to make that transition quickly then it won't be but a couple of decades and we will be there people will start realizing that their purpose here is to grow up and growing up means getting rid of fear and being cooperative and caring and with that as a purpose not just some uh, uh, well that's the way it is because I said so but that's the way it is because that's what solves physics problems you see that's a different Thing. Now you've got something that is objective and uh, um, uh, you know very hard evidence to that effect. So I think that will be a, a, the start. But now how well will we, the people, drop our fear and embrace this new paradigm? Well, you know, that could take some time. We're not all that quick about giving up our fears. That's a hard thing to do. So that may drag on for quite some time, but at least it'll get started. And if it gets started, we'll get there. It's just a matter of, you know, growing up is often painful. So we may run through through some painful times with it, but we'll get there. At least the ball will start rolling. So that's what I think will kick it off and likely to kick it off in our lifetime. So, yay, that's good news. Um, Let's see, what was the next one? Um, Oh, what would a reality based on caring and collaboration look like? Well, there are a whole lot of people that really get bent out of shape when you talk about a reality where everyone cooperates. It's a collective. It's a reality that that the uh, collective lowers its entropy. It's good for everyone, and they immediately see collective and think, you know, forced labor. Oh, here's a crank that needs to be turned. You, turn it. You know that's the collective, where the the uh, collective becomes the boss, and it's just another kind of tyranny, another kind of dictatorship. It's a dictatorship of the, you know, of the uh, of the what the, the controlling politics, and that is fear talking. That's what we have seen when collective governments have been tried. That's the communism and socialism model uh, have been tried on a large scale. They seem to end up in totalitarianism after a while because the people are fear-based and the government is going to reflect the people. So they're, they're going to just do that. But if you don't have people that are fear-based, if you have people who are love-based, then a collective is a wonderful place. What it looks like is that people care about each other. There's more freedom. You're not trapped in a collective organization that assigns duties. Everyone in that collective wants you to be happy. Everyone in that collective wants you to be doing what challenges you, what thrills you. And if that's not what you're doing, that whole collective will modify to give you something more of what you want and need. And that's true of everybody. So you have a a thing that will go out of its way to satisfy the needs of all of the people. That's a collective based on love. Remember, love is unconditional. Love is about other. This is now a love collective. So it's about all the other people. You're not going to say, hey, you, get turn this crank whether you want to or not because we need somebody to turn it and you're in the neighborhood. See, that's not about love. That's about need. This is what I want. I want somebody to turn the crank and I don't want to turn it myself. So, you know, you do it. That's not love. Well, if you had a a bunch of people who were caring and loving and cooperative, you would have immense individual freedom to do and be whatever you could do and be. You wouldn't have these um, these ruts that we get into. You wouldn't have the same kind of you know economic systems that we have. Yes, you'd still have to produce. You'd, you know the production has to come from somewhere. You know people do have to help. But there's lots of ways you can help. All sorts of things would be valued. It wouldn't just be, you know, left brain uh, uh, manufacturing that's that's valued. It would be other things. Art would be more valued. You know, uh, lots of things would have the value just for being what they are, because the whole society would want everybody to be authentic and be themselves and be happy. So it would be a great place to be. It would be a wonderful place. Now, as soon as you say, well, let's say half those people are fear-based, well, now it's probably going to deteriorate, and it may turn back into what we got now. So you really need a society where most of the people are love-based, and then it gets terrific. So let's say now you decide to go into a career, and you'd like to be reasonably wealthy, so you want to be a, a brain surgeon. So you cut people's brains open you know, every day, and that's what you do. Well, eventually, you get real bored with that. Yeah, it was challenging for the first five or ten years, but now it's kind of boring, and you'd like to get outside, get some exercise, and do other things. Well, if you have that need, then the system would help you. You can go do something else. You can be a park ranger on on Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays, and be a brain surgeon on Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Saturdays, and there's nothing wrong with that, you see. It just opens some more brain surgery places for somebody else who really would like to be a brain surgeon. It's not a matter of competitive and us against others. It's the collective trying to optimize every individual the best way they can. Now, there will be constraints. There's always economic constraints. But in general, most of our constraints are self-imposed. You know, we have constraints. People don't have enough food. They don't have enough water. They don't have enough you know, living space. Well, that isn't necessary. That's just the way our world works because people who have grab up more, and people who don't have end up with less. So we don't have a world that's based on everybody trying to help everybody else. We have a world, and we know what that's like because we live here. So what would a world be that's based on, on love and caring? magnificent it would really be great for all of us as individuals we would all feel like uh, you know princes and princesses
3: okay there was a third part to the question that is uh, to do with the science principle if it oh yes invent-
2: Right, right. Could that science certainty principle? You know that that science certainty principle is more like uh, company policy. It's policy in order to keep us from getting in our own way, for, you know, hurting ourselves. As we get less likely to hurt ourselves as we grow up, that policy is going to soften. That policy doesn't have to be there. So if most of us uh, were aware of our fear and learning and growing and becoming love then you wouldn't even need the policy at all. There'd be a lot of things that would be available, a lot of things that we could learn, a lot of use of our psi abilities that would be open. And everybody could have it because everybody would only use it for the good, you see, because now this is a society based on love and caring. So you wouldn't have people shaking other people down for money, you know, uh, and using psi to, you know, you know, like Al Capone, you know uses a you know a gun, you would have it all used for good things for helping out, and yes that that principle would probably go away entirely if we were all based on love. there would be no need for it. It would be a totally different place, and it's coming soon, right, a couple of decades get started now, I don't know that it'll come. You know, we're not going to get to that in a couple of decades where the science certainly goes away, but at least the process will, I think, get underway where we begin to see in mass, you know, millions, hundreds of millions of people begin to see a bigger picture. And I think that's where we have to start. And I believe the scientists, they won't mean to do it, but that's what they'll do when they uh, adopt virtual reality as, a, as better physics. And I can't help to think that they won't do that and do it soon because it is better physics.
3: All right. Coming soon to a virtual reality near you. Okay. Next (laughs) question. Our governing system, solutions for change. Tom, if you had an opportunity to sit and work with UN people, policymakers, young activists, and other people of the kind, and if they asked your opinion about how to reach the 17 Sustainable Development Goals, such as in poverty and wars, protect the planet, within the next 15 years? What would you tell them?
2: Well, the thing that they would need to understand is that you have to work on the fundamentals of a problem. You have to work on the problem itself. Working on the symptoms of the problem Maybe is helpful in the short term because it makes everybody feel better, but it isn't going to get you very far. so our medicine tends to be like that. You know, the doctors tend to work on symptoms. They make you feel better, but they very seldom actually do much to make you get better. They give you something to cover up the pain. They give you something to, uh, uh, you know, help the symptoms go away, but. Very seldom do they actually work on a source of the problem, because mostly they don't know the source of the problem. We aren't that good yet in medicine. But our social problems are the same way. The source of the problem is individual quality of consciousness. That's the source. It's not you know, the greedy industrialists. That is a symptom of the source. So you can get rid of all those greedy industrialists and you'd just be replaced by another bunch of greedy industrialists or somebody else that replaces a similar function in the society. We would regrow that dysfunctional uh, segment if you somehow got rid of it because that's the way we are. So all of those things, the bad governments, the the, uh, dysfunctional economies, the i don't know you know the greediness the grabbiness the control the manipulation all of that is a symptom because of our low quality of consciousness so if you want to actually fix it such that we do better and not just you know get a breather and then replace it with something just as bad if not worse you need to work on the problem and that's individual so you find a, a nasty dictator and you get rid of him, and another nasty dictator takes over and if you get rid of that one, you know then a nasty uh, collective takes over because that society is going to produce nasty because that's the way they are that's the way we are our government and, and our culture is a you know is a good good uh,
0: we are like that.
2: So that's you. Know, you, you can't. You, you know. You can't do more than symptomatic work if you're going to go out and change things in the outer world. So changing the outer world would be like uh, putting salve on a wound. It may make it going to fix the problem. You have to
0: get rid of up. Get
2: that. You won't have to change. The form themselves they'll just change automatically because those kinder, gentler people.
0: Well, I guess we have lost Tom. <laughs>
2: <laughs> we'll have to take a short break. The question okay. was, you know, if I were talking to, to UN people or policymakers, what would I tell them? And I would tell them that they needed to work on the problem, which was individuals, not the symptoms, which is the, you know, the institutions and the government.
0: All right.
3: And now for my own freedom, would you please talk to me about the governing system you're in? I understand that our collective insides need to change. What I'm asking about here, the system we live in and how it operates in more detail. Is there shadow government? There are countries and borders and seemingly separate governments but it seems the same small percentage rules at the top. It also seems to me that the economic machine is a bit like a game of monopoly, and that we're wasting our precious youth to numbers on a screen, and that prosperity is so much more within reach than we think. Syria has been bombed for years, and nobody can tell me why. Please correct me if I'm wrong, but it all seems like a wasteful, hypocritical game to me. If this makes any sense to you, please tell me why. Tell me the intent of the people in power. I see frustrated policymakers running around like hamsters in a wheel, moving pieces at the bottom, giving each other awards, but nothing's changing. Are we really trying, or is there something else going on?
2: Well, what you describe is pretty accurate about the way we are. But that is the way fearful people act. That's the way fearful people behave. So there's, you know, what you describe is the way it is because we are the way we are. Uh, Fearful people don't have trust. Fearful people see each other um, as uh, threats, as competitors. Fearful people uh, don't want to share. They want, you know, everything is a is about them. So all of the things you say, all the dysfunctions we have in our society are there because that is just the way fearful people act. And we can rearrange all the, you know, we can rearrange all the governments and organizations and train everyone and do, you know, all of the changes you could imagine. You know, if you were the master of the universe and could just uh, rearrange governments and, and corporations at will. It wouldn't do any good because if we're still the same people, we would regenerate the same thing. Uh, The idea that, uh, you know, 2% of the people own 90% of the stuff. That's just the way it is in fearful organizations. It's, it's the, it's the natural way. If you look at uh, fear and how fear works as a social dynamic, it couldn't be any other way. So, no, it, it doesn't it doesn't make sense in the sense of it's that it's a good thing to do or a good way to be, but it is just the way we are and it won't be any different until we change. So that's that society we're living in is what a fear based society looks like. And as long as we are a fear-based society, that's what our government and our industry and our environment is gonna look like. So That's the issue. It's the individual fear. And that has to be done an individual at a time. And nobody can force anybody else to grow up. You could gather all the people and put them in a room and say, okay, we're going to have lessons in growing up and getting rid of fear, and it wouldn't do any good at all. People have to do that on their own. The, The change has to come from the inside out. So it's just a matter of growing up. But the good news is, as we grow up, we help everybody around us grow up as we get rid of our fear all of those people that interact with, with us we help them get rid of their fear so growing up is contagious in that sense it uh, it helps it spreads so it will work we'll work this out it's not always going to be this way and like i say maybe in a decade or two we'll see the beginning of the of the changes here so what we need to do now is just let as many people know as possible that uh, this is a this is a virtual reality. It's all based on love. Consciousness is the computer. So that when those scientists stand up here in the next ten years or so and say it's a virtual reality, we can very quickly move to the love is the answer part, rather than take another you know a century to get from virtual reality to love is the answer. We have all the information we need to make that a pretty quick transition if enough people were aware. Otherwise, it'll take us, you know, another century to to figure out that love is the answer. So I hope not. I hope it doesn't take that long, but uh, it'll take a shorter time the more people there are that understand it. People are ready. People are yearning for this. People know that this doesn't work. Everybody's aware the system's broken. Everybody knows that this is not a good place to live, that there's too much greed, there's too much self-centeredness. Everybody's out for themselves. Nobody gives a damn about anybody else. And it's not like that's a secret to anyone. We all know it. We all don't like it. And we would like it to change. So there's lots of people out there who just give them an idea of what the solution is. They jump on it. People are hungry for a solution to this. But people also are just the way they are. And when there's something out there of value, they want to grab it before anybody else grabs it because that's just the way they are. But at the same time, they know this is not a nice place and we need to grow up. So I think people are ready to change. I think it would be embraced quickly if people had the opportunity to find a solution. That's why I'm hopeful. I'm an optimist. I think we got a chance to, to uh, turn this thing around here in the next uh, few decades. So,
0: Tom, um, can you hear me? Right now? Yeah, I hear
2: you. It's just your voice breaks up, but I get that sentence just fine.
0: Yeah, so you would tell them that. You would go to a UN meeting if you were invited and ask see if, if your opinion was asked. You know, they're trying to fix uh, outside factors. You would tell them it's not an outside factor. The, the, the system is broken because we are broken inside. And yes. we need to look at ourselves within and those meetings are kind of a waste of time, basically, is kind of what you're saying. You know
2: what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, they have to see what the cause is. And the cause isn't um nasty people. The cause is they're nasty because of the fear. They're not just nasty because they were born that way or raised that way, or the culture made them that way. They're that way because of their fear. And until you get rid of that fear, you're not gonna change anything. That is the cause. You can make everybody feel better, but for a while. But you can't fix it unless you fix the people, and you can't fix anybody but yourself.
0: Right. Thank you for that, because I have been invited to such meetings and workshops, and I have felt the desire to share what I know or what I what I sense, and mm-hmm. I have felt marginalized or, or maybe a little too too out there for them. You know. And I was all fake in not saying what I believed in, even though it wasn't at all what they wanted to hear. You know, they wanted to hear a policy you could come up with. The thing is,
2: if you're going to offer that kind of a suggestion to people, you have to offer them a path to get there. Because if you just say, here's the problem and here's what you need to do, thank you very much. Nobody's going to do much with that. But if you say, and here is an opportunity, here's where we need to go and here's how we're going to, Help people change and grow up. Here's some of the things we need to do. So if you work, you know, if you not only tell them what the answer is, but give them a way to implement the answer, then you'll get a lot further than if you just tell them what the answer is, but they don't have any idea how to implement it. Okay, a bunch of people. How do we go around changing everybody? You know, it's impossible. People have to change themselves. What are we going to do? Well, come up with some ideas of how to do that. Um... If you've looked at my videos from the Cultural Connection Tour, you'll see that I talk a whole lot about this very subject. And uh, you know, there are some things we can do. Um, there are some some ideas and things that we can uh, you know, that we can help support. So it's like it's not like there's nothing we can do, but we can't do it for people. We can't do it to people. We have to encourage them to do it themselves, and they won't do that unless they really want to. Right. a bigger, a different reality than what they see. So that's the idea. We need to get them this idea that...
0: <laughs> well, that, that answered it. <laughs> well, I'm
2: not sure what's wrong with Tom today. I mean, usually everything's fine on his end. It's been like a year ago that he had problems, but uh, not for the last like 10 sessions. Not sure. Okay. How is this? we back? back. We're
0: back.
2: Oh, it repaired itself.
3: Okay. Well, let's go to Chase for another
1: question. Tom, it's that shadow government trying to
2: shut you up. Well, you you see, Chase, it didn't work.
1: Uh, so my my question is uh i've been been looking into uh a lot of the uh, Egyptian pyramid stuff recently, and it's just so fascinating um seeing what uh they've been coming up with in archaeological digs like the water erosion underneath the sphinx and um all this talk about possibly you know many asteroid hits hitting the planet over the course of you know Twenty, thirty thousand years every time, uh, and I'm, my my question is, and I'm wondering because you know people still haven't really solved the question of how these buildings were built. Um, my question is, is that it, it must have been some advanced civilization, and and my, and I think maybe it's a, it could have been inva- advanced um psychically too. I mean but would that violate the psi uncertainty principle if that were true?
2: Well it would today, but that wasn't today. That was a long time ago. And Psi uncertainty principle uh no doubt has changed a lot in the in the process. You know, we had um, if you go back um even pre Egypt you will uh, find lots of people interacting with the gods. You know, in the Greek and the Roman mythology, you will find gods coming to Earth and doing things, and you will find pictures on cave walls of guys that look like they have space helmets on and so on. So there's lots of, of that kind of information to indicate that something perhaps unusual was going, was going on here a long, long time ago. And remember, I, I talked about uh, early on that the larger consciousness system had to grow up itself, that there was a time where it was not a hands-off uh, thing. It was uh, metal and, you know, manipulate and try to get, get those darn people to do what you want them to do, you see, and they're not doing it right because it had to grow up as well. So it, uh, you know, so all kinds of strange things could happen then And I don't think we can just write it all off as myth and legend. No doubt, a lot of myth and legend has come to surround it. But there may well be, you know, have, have been things that we just can't imagine today. They're just outside of our imagination as possibilities that actually happened then. It was a different reality and a different place. And the psi uncertainty wasn't necessarily anything like it is now. Matter of fact, the psi uncertainty wasn't even like it is now. Back in the 1800s, you know, in the 1800s, there was a time where psi research and psi events uh, were were very common, and and people from you know royal societies of you know importance would come and and check them out to see if they were faking it or something was going on. And people were levitating and people had ectoplasm oozing out of their bodies and on and on and on. And there's lots of of reputable people who attested that they'd seen such things and even some pictures, I believe, of such things going on. So we can just write that all off as a mass hallucination. And a whole lot of people, even though they were credentialed and, and had you know good reputations, just got fooled and so on. But... That's kind of the easy way out right that's the that's the easy way to end an argument. Say, oh well, just you know it's just hyper imagination there. none of that actually happened because today it doesn't happen. it happened then now why did it happen then and can't happen now? well, it's not because it was impossible then, just like it is now, and didn't actually happen that's again that's a cheap shot. Probably the psi uncertainty principle was a little different then because they didn't have the technology they didn't have, you know, CBS and NBC and Fox weren't there with the cameras rolling and that sort of thing. They didn't have the same situation that we have now. So things were allowed to go a little further. Things were allowed to break the rules more just to wake people up and say, "Reality eh, reality's bigger than you thought, you know, it's really different. It's not this clockwork universe that Newton told us about, look at all this stuff going on. So it was kind of a wake up call. And at that time, they were allowed to do things or, you know, have uh, demonstrations, if you will, that would not be allowed today with our psi uncertainty because it was just a different time. It was a wake up. One of those strange things are happening. Well, today that that wouldn't play well. It, you know, the same things would would be more damaging. So science uncertainty is a little tighter now because of that. We have world communications now. Mm-hmm. What happened in front of tens of people and maybe even hundreds of people at the most now can happen in front of, you know, hundreds of millions of people. So it's a different ball game. <clears throat> so, yes, science certainty would indeed change. And who knows for sure how those pyramids got, uh, got built. You know, there's lots of theories. I saw one on TV some years back where everybody, they were dragging stones and rolling those big stones on logs, you know, and, uh, I wasn't too convinced. It didn't look like it. that would make sense to me. Those rocks were just too big for a bunch of people rolling them on logs. You know, that even if they had perfectly round logs, which don't exist, you know, without any knot holes or any curves in them, it would be real hard to roll a piece of granite. That was, uh, what, uh, you know, like 10 feet on a side, it's incredible how much that weighs. And uh, it was
1: like it weighed it weighed like ten cars. Yeah. I mean, it just it didn't make it it doesn't make much sense to me.
2: Right. If you ever had a car that didn't work and you had to get out behind it and push it and it was sitting <laughs> on very high tech bearings with round wheels underneath of it. And if it just had a little bit of slope, it took like five or six people to, you know, to do it. Yeah. That didn't make yeah. sense to me either, so I don't know what the answer is. But I can see that that in times past, things were probably a lot different than they are now. Because then it could be, then maybe there was more meddling going on with the, you know, with the people. Um, who knows? But to just discount it because it doesn't suit what we see today, I think is probably arrogance we think yeah. that you know what we see today must be the way it's always been and it's right and anything that differs with that is obviously a hallucination that doesn't seem to be too open-minded so I don't know why or what happened but I don't think a bunch of people push those rocks up a hill rolling them on logs <laughs> <laughs> I just can't buy that thanks Tom
3: All right, we've got a question from New Zealand, our our dear friend Nick Storey. With regards to physical healing, such as prayer, remote healing, positive visualization, where there is belief, it seems there is a much stronger healing outcome. If we can acquire more and more data that supports the idea that our healing intent is a tangible force for healing people, Animals, situations, and our world would this then strengthen our belief in this type of healing, and therefore strengthen our ability to heal? Could belief then said to be a good thing, and when in this context of healing, or would there sti- were it still be wise to exercise open-minded skepticism when healing with intent? If the, would the healing outcome be as effective?
2: Okay. Uh, it doesn 't require belief to heal belief isn 't part of the process of healing it 's intent it 's a focused clear, strong being level intent that 's what heals that 's what modifies future probability there 's nothing that you have to believe it 's uh, the belief isn 't really what 's going on there now. It could be that some people who have beliefs that that somehow helps them focus their intent and you know put it at the being level, then maybe belief might help an individual to do that. But the belief then would be used as a tool, but that would be a a tool that's you know, a two edged sword. That would cut both ways because the belief will also trap you. You can't learn, you're not gonna grow from it. You'd be kind of stuck in the in the the things and the ways that you were doing. You wouldn't really have the big picture. So I would disagree that belief is a is a big force in, in healing. I think intent is belief is then an overlay. it's, it's it's kind of an overlay on top of that. The people who are very good at healing are good because they can create a strong focused being level intent for what it is they want to do. That's why they're effective. Not because they have a belief. If they have a belief on top of that, well, that, uh, that's extra probably is going to limit them. Some they probably, uh, Will have a hard time taking what they know and extrapolating it into other areas and other fields. It would be it'd probably be narrowly confined into what their belief, you know, limits them to. So I don't think belief is a is a good thing, even in that. I don't think belief is a necessary ingredient to healing. But it may it may go along with some people that heal may do that. But that, that way they'd be using their belief to help them attain the proper intent with the proper force at the being level, but that works. But it's also limiting, I would think. Better to do it without the belief. Do it because you understand how the world works.
0: Moving on to a question that is also about healing uh, bodies and disease in a
3: virtual reality. I heard you say before that when you close your eyes at night to sleep, your room disappears because it was never there to start with. The room isn't rendered anymore because no consciousness is observing it. So I wondered if our bodies work the same. If no one is cutting me open, there's no need to render my insides, or are they still rendered because I'm feeling them? Uh, when I drink my smoothie, what happens on the inside of me? If we don't really have bodies, how can we get sick? Why are these mysterious ailments that people sometimes experience without knowing their cause? Or what are these? I just feel this bubble. I have asked you about it before, and you said I put it there. Louise Hayes talks about the body talking to us to let us know when we are not in alignment. So I wanted to ask more about how that works and about the way to heal ourselves. If we awakened to the fact that it's not there in the first place,
2: would the ailment go? Sometimes it might. The probability of it going would go up. But let's start at the top of all of those. It's not really that because you open your eyes and observe your room is that's what creates your room. It's not that way. It's, I mean, that's that's one way of saying it, but that's a little confusing. A better way to say it is that you have a data stream. You're a consciousness, and you're getting a data stream, and that data stream. Is interpreted by you to be your room, so there is no room. There never was a room. There's only a data stream that you interpret to be your room. Just like when you're playing uh, you know, The Sims, you get a bunch of colored dots on your on your uh, computer screen, and you interpret that to be Sims characters in a Sims world doing whatever it is they do. So you're getting data. You interpret it to be your room. You interpret it to be your body. You interpret it uh, to be your insides. You interpret it to be a green smoothie. All of that is just data that comes to you, and your interpretation of that data. So none of it ever existed as a thing in itself. It is all your interpretation of information sent to you in this in this uh, virtual reality. So you have a you have a data link to the computer that's rendering this virtual reality, and it sends you data, and you make choices. You say, okay, I'm going to you know, put lemon in my green smoothie this time. That's my choice. So you do that, and that goes up and uh, comes back down. And now when the avatar uh, you know, gets his hand and slices the lemon and puts it in there, and the avatar does it because that's what the computer makes the picture do, and you get that data, and you have it, and you drink it, and you taste it, it's all there. Okay, so that's the thing about you have to observe it. So what about your insides? No need to render your insides. Well, all you have to render is your outside. See, the insides are hidden. Nobody's looking at your insides, so they don't have to be rendered. They have to render your outsides as if your insides were there. So they have to render you as a, let's say, a a thinking being. Here's one I often have, have talked about in some of my talks. It's like the oxygen you breathe, okay? There doesn't have to be any oxygen in the air. There doesn't have to be any air. There is no air. All of that is just data that you're interpreting. Well, the data doesn't contain oxygen because you don't don't see oxygen. Nobody sees oxygen. So because the probability is likely that there is oxygen and therefore that the rule set is satisfied in its need for oxygen for your biology, because that's probable, And why is it probable? Because there's enough plankton in the ocean, enough trees still growing in South America, et cetera, et cetera. So it's probable that there's going to be oxygen in the room. So you just get to continue on without the system ever having to worry about oxygen. It just has to worry about making you walk and talk and do whatever you're doing. You see, there's no need to render oxygen. But it's the probability that oxygen will be there and in enough quantity that it allows you to continue on. So that's that's what's going on. So no, your insides don't have to be uh, don't have to be rendered and you can still feel them. You can still hear your stomach gurgle because you're hungry and you can feel that little bubbles coming up and your stomach kind of tighten up. Well, that's just a feeling that you get. Now that feeling is in the data stream, but the stomach doesn't have to be in a data stream. You see, just the feeling. So you have to think of this as, as a data stream that you interpret not really the things that blink in and out of existence because you look at them or don't link at, look at them. It's just a data stream. Okay, um, so when you drink that smoothie, then uh, you get to make, your avatar makes the smoothie, it puts the lemon in it, and you drink it, you taste it, hopefully you enjoy it, and you maybe feel it as it oozes down your throat, and then whatever the rule set says about what happens you know, to uh, digestion in this particular virtual reality, then that's what happens. But we only get the, we only, the results are what are rendered, not the process. The process of digestion doesn't have to take place. Just the results of that process have to take place. Just like the results of oxygen being here has to be rendered. See, all of our uh, virtual realities work exactly like that too. I mean, our games, right? You render just the outside parts. That elf that runs around or that Sims character that walks around. We don't render his organs we don't render his brain we don't render you know anything at all other than what we see just what we see is rendered it's as if he had a brain and was making choices it's as if you know he had you know lungs and and muscles so he could walk around and lift things and you know open doors it's as if he had a skeleton that made his body stand up it's as if it's rendered as if those things were true Well, that's the same way it happens here. You go on with your activities as if there was oxygen, as if your green smoothie got digested. But none of that stuff actually has to be done. See, that's the, that's the the beauty. That's the efficiency of a statistical uh, reality. If it were, if it weren't statistical, you'd actually have to do all that stuff. You see, if this was a bottoms up, physics simulation then you'd have to start with quantum particles and then drive everything up from that along the digestion every every element of you know every molecule of oxygen everything would have to be created from the ground up that's impossible we have all the supercomputers in the world with Never, you know, be able to compute just one human being, you know, walking across the room if they had to do it all from the bottoms up. But when you have these statistical probabilistic simulations, you don't have to compute much of anything except what people look at. That's in the data stream. Nothing else has to be there. So you, comp- you compute it as if all those things worked. Now, somebody, uh, you know, you have an appendicitis and they cut you open. Well, they're going to see all the stuff that should be in there. And if a Sims character had an appendicitis and a Sims doctor cut them open, you'd see the same stuff. There'd be a stomach and organs and lungs and all that stuff would be there. And the Sims doctor would reach in and pull that stuff out for the appendicitis and sew the person back up and they would go on. Because when you open something up, when you look inside of something, the virtual reality has to show you what's in there. You can't just look inside and there's a black hole. There's nothing there. So the virtual reality will always show you what's inside. So you'll only see though the outside of that lung. You won't see how it works inside unless you cut that lung open. None of that, none of the insides of that lung are going to be rendered. See, just the outside because you've cut open the skin. So now you can see the lung, but only what you see is the only thing that gets rendered. That's the beauty of a probabilistic reality. It's efficient. We can, you know, it can run without uh, taking huge amounts of computer time and throughput. It wouldn't work if we had to calculate it all up from, you know, elementary particles, you know, up to, you know, a green smoothie. All the individual particles in the green smoothie would all have to be calculated. Uh, too much. So uh, that's the way that works. Okay, now how come we get sick? If there isn't anything in there anyway, how come we get sick? Well, we get sick because of the rule set. The rule set says that this bacteria gets out of whack. Well, how does bacteria get out of whack? Well, there's a probability because of the rule set. It says that if all you do is eat fudge and you know Coca-Cola for three days and eat nothing else, your internal system is gonna start complaining. You're gonna get belly aches, you know, you're gonna get ill, you'll feel sick. That's just part of the rule set. Don't give the, the biology what it needs to function, it's gonna start complaining. So you do those things. Now it goes into the probability. What's the probability? that Huda is going to be feeling good. Oh, not so high because of what she was eating in the last three days. So what's the probability? You take a random draw from the, you know, from all the possibilities in a probability distribution and out comes Huda with a bellyache, you know, with, with distress, because that's what is most likely because of the choices you made. You make choices and they have consequences. That's the, that's the way the game works. So it's just a rule set that makes us ill. What's the probability? You know, you go walk into a grocery store and you pick up the grocery cart and you grab it with your hands and you walk off and do your grocery shopping. What's the probability that there was a three-year-old with a runny nose sitting in the back of that cart just before you picked it up, and uh, you know they had some kind of virus and it's all over the handle of that cart you just grabbed hold of? You know, what's the probability of that? Well, that's about the probability that you are going to get sick. Maybe one in a hundred. Well, one in a hundred times, maybe you get ill. That's the probability, you see. Now you have a real good intent that virus, virus, you're not going to get sick. You're healthy. Your immune system will take care of everything, anything. Well, now the probability of you getting sick just went down. See, it's not as high as it was anymore. Or you have the opposite idea. Oh, you know, I, I get sick all the time. I go into, you know, the grocery store, and the first thing I do is take out my spray, you know, and I spray Lysol all over the handle. And I, I walk around with a cough over my mouth, and uh, I never open a doorknob. Because I don't have a handkerchief in my hand. And so if you're that fearful about getting ill, you're probably going to get ill anyway because you'll create that illness. You'll have more illness because you'll be open to it because of your fear. But it's the rule set is uh, what causes those uh, that illness. Uh, and healing yourself, yes, your intent at the being level can modify the probability of you getting ill. Okay. And it can, in, it can increase the probability
0: of you being ill. So about mysterious ailments, you know, like... Um... Parkinson's, I mean, I guess it's not that mysterious, but for instance, things that you can't really explain, like, um, you know, my mom used to burp a lot, like she had like stomach ailments, and then I had that, and I'm like, come on, Well, you know, I'm, uh, there's people that have uh, uh what do you call it, Lyme's disease, and they all live in New York, you know, and it's like, mm-hmm. well, what, what, clearly it's, and, you know, like every single one of them. That must have been created by the mind. So, what do we need to do in order to reverse this, or to? There might be an emotional reason for this happening. That might not be a virus. Something up there, you know?
2: Yeah. Well, there are. Yeah, your emotions live at your being level. That's what is at the being level. You know, your emotions live there. Your intellect often doesn't live there, but your emotions do. So if you are upset or frightened, then that's at your being level. That's where those emotions are. And that's where strong intents are created, is that the being level intents are the ones that are powerful. So, yes, we can, you know, uh, get things just because other people have them. That's a possibility. We have a fear. Oh, all my friends have Lyme disease. Oh, no, I get it too. You know, that may be a possibility just because you raise that probability. Now, if you've never been in the woods, you've always been in your, you know, your apartment uh, on the top of a skyscraper someplace and never left. Well, now you've got a, a kind of a psi uncertainty principle. You know, you're getting Lyme disease and there's no way you could have come in contact with a tick. That's kind of problematical. But all you have to do is maybe be around people who do go in the woods or um, something like that, and then the probability will go up a whole lot. So it's not that everybody, you know, is going to create that out of their mind, but we create a lot of our illnesses out of our heads just because of our fear, just like we create, um, you know, negative entities that torture us, you know, out of our fear. A lot of that is is uh, self made. Most of our misery is self made. Most of our upset is self made. It's us. So
0: you think for me it might just be like a, a fear or like a, a fear of it happening that makes it happen?
2: Yeah, what it, that is one thing that makes it happen. You you create the things you fear, the things that you, you know that worry you and that you are frightened of. You create that. If you know your relationship just isn't going to work out, you will create that. It won't work out because of that fear. If you, you know, if you fear whatever it is you fear, you start to act in ways to bring about. Because you fear your relationship won't work out, then you're cold and distant in the relationship because you fear it won't work out. And that being cold and distant makes it not work out. You see, you start to act in ways that create the, that create the fear. That's the way it is. Yeah. We're co-creators in this reality and fear is our problem.